Jesus said, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. The tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Our Holy Father, we thank you for the incredible truth that you save people not on the basis of human merit, but on the finished work of your Son. You have called us to share this good news with a lost world, and we know that someday when we stand before you, Lord Jesus in heaven, and you evaluate the deeds that we've done as saved people, that you will reward us, among other things, based on our faithfulness to the gospel. We know that whoever will call upon your name will be saved, but you said, how can they call upon your name unless they've heard, and how will they hear unless someone goes and tells them? So like Isaiah the prophet, we pray that we'd have beautiful feet this week, that we'd be willing and wanting to share the great love that someone shared with us. We pray, Spirit of God, for all those that are listening that have never met you, that don't really know what it means to be saved. They're not sure that they would go to heaven. They think they might, they hope, but they don't know. But thank you that you wrote through John the Apostle, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. Thank you that it's not a hope so, but it's a no-so salvation that you've given us. So help them to come to an understanding, for unless you open their eyes and unite the Word of God in faith, nothing will happen. We're so thankful on this Lord's Day that we are Americans, that you have planted us in this country, but we realize our country is in deep trouble. It's in utter rebellion towards you. We want to pray for our Supreme Court this week as they meet, as they dialogue, as they consider two important cases that would protect the lives of the unborn. Help these men and women to do what is right, even if it means rioting in the streets. Help them to do what is right. So, Father, we humbly yield ourselves before you this morning as we open your word. We come as children, much like Samuel, who said, teach me, Lord. We pray that you'd illumine the truth of Scripture, that we might understand it and properly apply it. And Lord Jesus, we ask it in your holy name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 3. If you are a visitor here, we believe that every single word that we read in the Holy Scripture is inspired by God. That's what Jesus taught. In fact, he built a case for his deity on the tense of a verb. He said the smallest letter and the smallest mark was inspired by God Almighty. 
And that's why we do expositional preaching here. We don't just discuss concepts. We look at word by word, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We just finished a book of the Bible, and God willing, before fall ends, we plan to begin an Old Testament book. But right now, I'm in a series on basic evangelism, why it is that we as Christians need to share our faith. Christ has given every born-again, blood-bought child of God a commission to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. That's not just for professionals like myself. It's for everyone who names the name of Christ. As you go, literally, as you go where? As you go everywhere you go, make converts, make disciples. That's the thought of the word, not do discipleship. Make disciples, make converts of all peoples, all nations. God's not a respecter of persons, neither should we. Rich, poor, black, white, yellow, brown, doesn't matter. If they move, then they are people that we should attempt to share Christ with if God opens that door. Now, He is going to fulfill His great commission with or without us. The question is, how faithful will we be? So we began this series by discussing sharing Christ courageously, and we looked at the persecution the early church experienced because they spoke truth. And listen, as we move into the end of the age, things will not get easier. They'll get more difficult. Sin will increase, Jesus said. And persecution will grow. And there are many nations of the world today. I had two missionaries contact me this week in two countries. And they said, please, we beg you, pray for us, Pastor Carl. We are under great persecution. My heart bleeds, and I think, you know, that might wake up the American church that's so lethargic. And I believe tougher times are in front of us. So we need to share Christ courageously. Secondly, then we looked at sharing Christ consistently, and we, look at a de- we looked at a deacon by the name of Philip, who later was deemed Philip the Evangelist. And he saw the need not just to share with the masses, but to share with individuals. For when the Scripture says, for God so loved the world, the world is made up of you and me and individuals. And God sees each and every person as valuable in His sight. And so we need to consistently share and look for opportunities and be sensitive to the Spirit of God as that man was. Then if you were here last week, we spoke about sharing Christ in the Spirit. Then unless we're filled with the Holy Spirit, for it's the Word of God and the Spirit of God that come in union with one another. And so God uses a human agent. He doesn't write the word on the sky and in the clouds. He uses us to share it. And as we are filled with the Spirit, the two parents in conversion, the Spirit of God and the Word of God, bring about a second birth. Today we're addressing the subject of sharing Christ with others. And then next week I'll finish this series. Maybe it's the most important message in the whole series, sharing Christ in the last days. Now, today we want to speak about sharing Christ, and we're going to use a text of Scripture, John 3.16. It's, in many ways, the greatest verse in all the Bible. It's certainly the most quoted, the most memorized verse in all the Bible. And yet, many Christians don't really understand the meaning of the verse and its context. And I believe every born-again Christian should have at least one section of Scripture apart from the Roman road, and would you like to know God as your friend, one section of Scripture that you can walk another individual through to share Christ. And this is, I suppose, the classic text in all of the Bible, because it speaks about being born again. If you're live streaming, our friends here have a bulletin, 
And those who have this bulletin, you'll see there are two questions that we're going to explore this morning. The first question asks, if it is necessary to have the second birth in order to get to heaven, then on a scale of zero to 100, how sure are you that you've been born again? Jesus said, you must, you must, you must. Three times over, you must be born again to enter God's kingdom. So how sure are you? I want to ask you, wherever you may be, just to mark it out physically or at least in the margin of your mind. Now, saying you're a hundred doesn't mean it's true. Jesus speaks of a great multitude at the end of time who have a false assurance, who are convinced they're going to heaven, that everything is right, but he'll say to them, I never, I never met you. Second question is equally important. If you were to stand before God knowing that you must be born again in order to enter his kingdom, and God asks you to explain how it is that one is born twice, what precisely would you say? What would you say to an individual? Write down your answer. Just think it for a moment. If nothing else, hold your answer because I want you to take your answer and put it into the mirror of Scripture. Being born again is the central topic of John chapter 3, and it's key to understanding the love of God because when you're born again, the love of the Holy Spirit is poured out into your heart, and God becomes real in a new and a profound way, and you become a new creation. Now, we're going to examine 21 verses, but to give us kind of a feel for the text, I want to read just verses 16 through 21. Follow along. If you don't have a Bible, come to meet the pastor. The scripture is on the screen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now, I hope you remember the occasion of these words. Jesus had done his first miracle in Cana of Galilee. And then he uh, went through Capernaum for a few days, and then he ends up in Jerusalem where he does a whole multiplicity of miracles. And there's a rich, religious, well-known, respected leader by the name of Nicodemus who's been observing what Jesus had done. He had seen the incredible authority in which Jesus cleansed the temple. He cleansed it twice in his public ministry, once in the beginning and then at the end of his public ministry just before the crucifixion. So he's thinking, this one who comes with great authority, this one who comes with great signs, is it possible that he is indeed the Messiah? And I want to submit to you this morning that what we find in John chapter 3 concerns the world's greatest truth, because there is no greater truth than salvation. If you've met Christ, if you've genuinely been saved, and I asked you, what is the single most important decision of your life, you would say without stutter or stammer, the day I was saved. And if that's the most important decision in your history, that's the most important thing that you could share with another individual. The greatest text, without a doubt, unfolding for us the greatest truth that will lead to the greatest test. 
So the greatest text is our need to be born again. The greatest truth is how it happens. And then the test, is it true or is it just verbiage? You can know the plan of salvation without ever having met the man of salvation. And there'll be a great multitude, many, Jesus said at the end, who did all kinds of things in his name, and he will say, I never knew you. So let's get started with the world's greatest truth, the world's greatest truth. Notice how the chapter opens, verse 1 begins, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus is identified to us as a Pharisee. Pharisee, it's a word that actually literally means a separated one. And they were separated in their observance of the law, the way they uh, washed their hands and practiced certain cleansing issues, the diet they ate, tithing, and especially Sabbath observance. The Pharisees was a brotherhood of Jewish men that went from about the second century BC, and they were obliterated, and their ministry, so to speak, was ended in 70 AD. 70 AD, of course, is the year that Titus Vespucian came and destroyed the temple. They're on the Mount of Olives. Jesus has four of the men, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and they're looking at the marvel of the temple. And Jesus said, a day is coming when one stone won't stand upon another. When I take people to Jerusalem, I take them to one spot. Actually, there's a rock there that says, to the trumpeter. This is the place where the Jewish man would blow the trumpet. They found that right at the base along with all these stones where literally one stone had not stood upon another. These were temple stones from the Herodian temple. And of course, that ended these people, so there have been no Pharisees since, at least not in the strict sense. I'm sure they're still with us today. But he's a Pharisee, and he's deemed here a ruler of the Jews. That meant he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had 70 members plus the high priest. So he's one of 71. And it was a very prestigious group. It would be equated to being a member of the Supreme Court in our country. They ruled over all the Jewish affairs for all the Jews in the world. And he comes on behalf of the Pharisees. We know that you've come from God. So he is acknowledging that he is coming in a representative way about other Pharisees. We read here at verse 2, this man came to him, notice, by night. A lot of ink spilt on those two words, by night. Some say, well, he came by night because that was the time he might have a private conversation because Jesus was always surrounded by masses of people. Some say he came by night because it's hot during the day and it's much better to have a long protracted conversation when it's cool. Some say he came by night because he feared the fact that people might see him as a Jewish leader speaking with this man from Nazareth. Some say he came by night because he was tired of counting sheep, so he went and spoke directly to the shepherd. Maybe he just means by night as a historical fact. We don't know. So I want to hear these preachers and say, let me tell you why he came by night. We don't know. That's called eisegesis when we read into the text. But what we do know is that he came with an open, teachable, searching heart. And he's wanting to speak about signs, semion, or you could render it miracles. John uses this word, semion. It's a miracle with a message. And he selects seven signs, apart from the resurrection, that he records. And at the end of his gospel, he says, these things have been written. Though Jesus did many other miracles, the ones I've written have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing you might have life in his name. So he wants to talk about miracles, and Jesus wants to talk about the new birth. 
But in one sense, he doesn't really change the subject because the greatest miracle is indeed the new birth. So he says, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so this dialogue runs all the way through verse 10, where three times he's told that if he wants to see, it's a word that means to understand, if he wants to perceive the kingdom of God, if he wants to enter the kingdom of God, then he must be born again. George Whitfield was a great 18th century pastor, and for a segment of his life, he stopped pastoring, served as an evangelist, and went back to pastoring. But whether it was in the pulpit or traveling as kind of the Billy Graham of his day, one person came to him one day and said, Mr. Whitfield, all you ever do is speak about the need to be born again. You always preach on the need to be born again. Why do you preach on the need to be born again? He said, because you must be born again. <laughs> and here's the, the, the king preacher, God himself, teaching us of our need to be born again. And that word again is a, a Greek word that has a dual nuance. As you have the marginal notes with the NASB, you could translate it from above. It has both senses. One who is born from above or born a second time. You have to choose one word, so depending on your translation, they chose one of those two ways. Look at verse 4. Look at his response to what Jesus just said. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, all children are a wonderful miracle of the handiwork of God, and no sooner do they come into this world do they make themselves known. But while they are very much alive physically, the Bible describes them as being dead spiritually. Do you remember what Adam was told in Genesis chapter 2? God said, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day, and in Hebrew it's emphatic, it would be like underlining it in red or highlighting it, like in the very day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now they ate, but it didn't appear that they died, but we know God can't lie. And the word death is the Hebrew word muth. And it means to separate or to sever or to kill. They did die that day. They died instantly on the inside. That intimacy with God was lost. And to illustrate in the spiritual realm what was unfolding in the physical realm, among other things, and for different reasons, God put them outside of the garden and put two holy angels with a flaming sword of fire so they could no longer come back into the cool of garden and walk and talk with God. They died on the inside. They were in shame that day and guilt. Where are you? God asked. God knows everything. Whenever God asks a question, it's only, of course, to reveal. And he was revealing that there was a huge problem. They began to die that day physically. They began to age. And so now we're born dying. We're getting older and older and older, and we're headed towards the grave. And if the problem's not fixed before we leave this world, we die a third kind of death. Beyond spiritual and physical, there's eternal death. That's why you must be born again. If you've only been born once, you will die twice, first physically, then eternally. It's called the second death, where a person is forever separated from God in the lake of fire. And so Nicodemus, in essence, says, I don't understand you know, there's no reverse gear in terms of life. How can someone be born twice? Jesus answered, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, some of our Catholic friends say this is a reference to baptism. Unless you're baptized and born of the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Look, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. We know it doesn't mean that. You say, how so? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. What's the gospel? That Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul said, I did not come to preach the gospel, I did not come to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In other words, he separated baptism from the gospel. Some that say, well, this is an allusion to the Word of God, and certainly water sometimes is used as an allusion to Scripture, and in that sense, you know, we're born of the Word of God. You're not born of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God, through a life-giving sperma, but we're also born again of the Spirit. While that's true, that certainly is not what this text is teaching, not contextually. Nicodemus is thinking physical birth. How can you be born a second time physically? And Jesus responds, you must be born of water. That's your first birth. Mom's water breaks. Out comes before long a beautiful baby. And you must be born a second time. You must be born of the Spirit. Now, not to see, but notice to enter. So if you want to see spiritual truth and you want to enter into God's kingdom, you must be born again. So Jesus is basically saying, let me explain to you about this physical and spiritual birth. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's your first birth. That's the physical birth. And as you know, the word flesh or sarks is sometimes used to describe the skin that covers your skeleton. But most of the time in the New Testament, it's used to describe the fallen sinful nature within. Some of the newer translations, they translate the word sarks, not as flesh as traditionally, but they just write two words, sinful nature. It's interpretive, but it's certainly correct. He's just reminding us all that the flesh can produce is fleshly fallen life. And so we send an atom, so what can we produce? Little atoms. When Adam sinned, the whole world sinned, Romans 5 and verse 12. So you can't blame your sin on Adam. We're born by nature, by birth, by choice, sinners. If you're a sinner, say amen. I don't look so holy. I mean, say amen. You know, yeah, we're, we're all sinners. We are. If you don't believe me, ask your wife. She'll tell you. But here's the point. In the book of Genesis, over and over and over again, God says they produce after their kind. Cats don't produce dogs. Monkeys don't produce men, though some would have you to believe that. We produce after our own kind. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. King David said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not saying he is sinful because he was born out of wedlock. He is saying that from the point of conception, I was a sinner. And by the way, in this world of throwaway babies, this generation needs to understand that life doesn't begin at birth. So there's a platform in one of our parties that says you can murder the baby up until the day the baby is born. Now, I cannot support that. I never will. And in this day of throwaway children, we need to affirm what God says, that he weaves the life together in the womb and that life begins at the moment of conception 
That's what the scripture affirms. And this week is an important week because our Supreme Court will look at two cases that potentially could have a huge ramification on Roe v. Wade nationally. So contrary to the evolutionary thought of our day that would skirt our linkage to Adam, listen to what Paul said in Acts 17. In he, God has made from one man, if you have, again, the NASB with marginal notes, it says from one blood, he has made from one man or one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. Now, the races came at the Tower of Babel. We all looked pretty much the same before Babel. But then, because of a man's rebellion against God, God confused them. Babel is the Hebrew word for confusion. And he split them up into language groups. When you marry within your language groups, you begin to develop specific features. It might be slanted eyes, upward, downward, different colors of skin. But we're all related. We all go back to our original parents, Adam and Eve. And because we sinned in Adam, you see it in children. You don't have to teach a three-year-old to be selfish. You have to teach that little boy or girl to share. You don't have to teach a five-year-old how to lie. You have to teach him to tell the truth. You say, well, he learned that behavior from someone else. Well, he may have, but I tell you, your child can be just as creative as my children were. They can come up with some things all by themselves. Look, if you raise them remote control, with a remote control, they would still be a little sinner. We are a sinner by nature, by birth, by choice. And so this is the teacher of Israel. He knew verses like Isaiah 59.2, that our sin has separated us. He knew verses like Ezekiel 18, that uh, the soul that sins must die. He knew those verses like we know Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, or Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Here's the problem illustrated. On one side, we have God who is holy. Next slide, thank you. And on the other side, we have man who is sinful. Your iniquity has made a separation between you and your God. And all of us have felt the shame and guilt and separation that that sin brings. And we often try to correct it on our own. We think, well, good works, following a particular religion, a certain philosophy or moral code. And basically all the religions of the world, with the exception of biblical Christianity, and I say biblical because not all Christianity is biblically oriented, but they all teach that man through his own merit can reach God. Jesus is going to unfold that problem for Nicodemus and show him why that's impossible. Proverbs twice over in the 14th and in the 16th chapter, God only does that a couple times in all the Proverbs where he repeats himself twice, for there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. And so our salvation, our ticket into heaven, into the kingdom of God, is we must be born from above. Again, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's your first birth, your physical birth. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's your birth from above. That's your second birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Physical birth is one thing. A spiritual birth is something entirely different. And Jesus knows that if you're going to go to heaven, you must be born again. So for this reason, Jesus tells Nicodemus, look at verse 7, do not be amazed, don't marvel, don't be blown away that I said to you, you must be born again. He's showing him his greatest need if he wants to be included in the kingdom of God. You say, well, pastor, I don't totally understand the second birth. 
Well, neither do I. There's a certain mystery to it. Now, I'm going to tell you in a second how you can get it and how you can enjoy it, but I don't fully understand it. Look what Jesus said, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's not by accident that the Greek word for wind and the Greek word for Spirit is identical. Somewhat of a play on words that Jesus is giving us. It's a powerful comparison. Both are invisible, neither can be controlled by man, and to this day, science admits it doesn't fully understand the wind. Yet the work of the wind, the effects of the wind, the work of the Spirit, the effects of the Spirit can be seen by all. So Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, tell me where the wind comes from and where it goes. You hear it, you feel it, but you don't understand it. So don't try to figure all this out. And by the way, he adds, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. They don't understand us. We're like the mystery of the wind. Why? Because a natural mind does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't comprehend them. Why? Because they're spiritually comprehended or understood. So you get saved, and all of a sudden, your friend says, what's wrong with him? What happened to him? He's different. I don't like the, the difference. Sometimes they like it. Sometimes they don't. Now, I can't fully understand it, but again, I can tell you from what Jesus said how you can get it and how you can enjoy the benefits. But if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, look, there's only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of heaven and there's the kingdom of the condemned. There's the kingdom of light and there's the kingdom of darkness. There's the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom of Satan. There's the kingdom that will land you in heaven and there is a kingdom that will land you in hell. There is no in-between. Well, Nicodemus, notice verse uh, 9. He doesn't get the message fully yet. Nicodemus said, well, how can these things be? Rabbi, how does this second birth take place? By the way, he's moved from where he was. If you notice in the first question, he says, well, how can a man be born twice? But now he's underscoring the possibility of this second birth. How does this process that brings about the new birth take place? Notice Jesus' response in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Now, the old English said, are you a teacher of Israel? Uh, the New King James corrected it more precisely. Those guys were learning Greek when they wrote the 1611 translation. The, the languages of the Bible had basically not been studied for centuries. The Bible was in Latin. All the terms on the stained glass behind on this pulpit in front, they're Latin terms, and they represent issues of the Protestant Reformation. But the New King James says, the teacher, correctly so. He's not saying, are you a teacher? It's articular. The article is very important, as you know, in Greek. Jesus didn't say, I am a way. He said, I'm the way, meaning there's no other way. Are you the teacher of teachers? The big shot that you are and you don't understand. Are you the most reverend doctor of PhD Nicodemus? And you don't get this? Now, he could have gotten it. He should have gotten it if he had studied the Scriptures carefully. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Remember, up until this time, Jesus has not told Nicodemus how to get the new birth. He's just underscored the necessity of the new birth. It's not a nice thing to be born again. It's necessary if you want to go to heaven. So he's silenced at this point, and the dialogue ends, and a monologue begins in verse 11. Jesus said, 
truly, truly, I say to you. By the way, that's the third time he said truly, truly, verily, verily, the old English says. The Greek says, amen, amen. When God says that in Scripture, it's like, hey, put your spiritual antennas up. What I'm about to say is super important. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. I hope you notice the use of the plural verbs in the English Bible four times, in the Greek Bible five times. We speak, we know, we testify. We don't repeat it for grammatical reasons, but it says we speak, we know, uh, we testify, we have seen, and then he speaks of our testimony. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am telling you something that has already been written about in the Old Testament scriptures that you as the teacher of Israel should have known. Had he read Ezekiel carefully, had he read the prophet Jeremiah carefully, had he read even the opening chapters of the Genesis where God makes a promise of a second birth of salvation, he would have known that there is a need to enter into a new covenant, and he should have known that. So as a teacher, he should have known these things. Then Jesus said to him, uh, and by the way, it's interesting. We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you, and you goes to the plural at that point, meaning you people, meaning you, Nicodemus, and the Jewish people that you represent as their teacher. And you do not accept our testimony. If I told you, verse 12, earthly things, and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's referring to the conversation he's just had with Nicodemus. If I've told you earthly things, and that's what he's been talking about, then how can I tell you heavenly things? Now, the new birth, it takes place on earth. But his point is, if you can't understand the basic truths that will bring you into the kingdom of God, how can I expand on the deeper truths that will tell you about that coming kingdom? You don't accept, you don't receive this testimony. By the way, don't confuse information with unbelief. You can have information and not respond to that information. The Jewish people later in this gospel in John the 12th chapter, Jesus said, while the light is among you, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. Respond that you can be born again to go back to his verbiage in John 3. And then John adds, though he was performing many miracles among them, they chose they would not believe. And then he adds, because they would not believe, they could not believe. And then he describes, quoting Isaiah the prophet, because God has blinded their eyes, God has hardened their heart, God has stopped their ears. You see, because they would not, they came to the point where they could not. And that's why there's always an urgency when we encourage people to make a decision. We're not trying to browbeat them, but nobody has the promise of tomorrow. You may be dead tomorrow. Christ may come before this service is over. You say, I don't think he'll come. He'll come in a time when you least expect. Nothing has to happen. We'll discuss this further next time for Christ to come for his church. Not to mention, the Spirit of God will not always strive with men. You don't come to Christ in your own. No one, Jesus said, John 6, can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And when you resist truth and you put off truth, you can go from I would not to I could not. 
And so it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're the stark, naked savage or the PhD, kind of like Nicodemus, who's a pseudo-intellectual. The problem is the same. The problem is they would not believe. The problem is unbelief. If I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Some teacher, you must be of heavenly things because you don't even get the earthly things. And the earthly things are this new birth that happens on earth. I was 18. I can still picture the room I was in. I can take you to the building I was in, the very classroom that I made a decision to call upon Jesus in my heart. It took place on earth. And unless you get saved here on earth, there's no second chances after you die. It's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Nicodemus needed to understand these earthly miracles, and especially the miracle of the new birth, if he was ever going to understand heavenly things. And by the way, being born again is not so much of getting man off earth into heaven. It's more an issue of getting God from heaven into your heart, where you are regenerated and made alive, and you become a new creature. And by the way, let me just say the authority that Jesus says this with. Did you pick it up when I, well, I didn't read it yet, but verse 13 says, no one, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm speaking with absolute authority. No one's gone up into heaven and then come back to tell you what it was like. But I left heaven because he has no beginning or end, and he comes to earth. By the way, you hear these people say, well, I died and went to heaven. No, they didn't. They're either A, lying, or B, confused because of a lack of oxygen, or C, just downright deceived. And I've met more than I don't have enough fingers and toes to tell you the people in, that I've shared the gospel with in 40 years who've told me they've died and gone to heaven, and, oh, really, what was it like? And they tell me, and I say, well, tell me, if I wanted to go to heaven, what would I need to do? And then they give me some answer that is so contrary to what we're going to read here in just a moment. And they think all is fine. Listen, it's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You don't die, go to heaven, come back. Now, you may have experienced something with oxygen deprivation or under anesthesia, but it wasn't death because when you die, the Spirit, James says, leaves the body, and you are either in heaven or in hell. And I might say there's no in-between state. Today is October the 31st, when Martin Luther nailed to the door at the church at Wittenberg 95 theses or assertions where the Roman church that he represented as a priest had departed from Holy Scripture. And his goal, of course, was not to um, uh, reject the Roman Catholic Church. He wanted to reform it. He wanted them to get right. He'd been to Rome. It was his dream to go there to the Holy City. He got there, and he couldn't believe in corruption. He couldn't believe the immorality amongst the cardinals and the priests. And he came back disillusioned, and a short time later, the Pope, because St. Peter's Cathedral, you ever been there? It's breathtaking. I mean, you go into St. Peter's, and on the floor is marked all the great cathedrals of the world. And the last one in the line is Westminster Abbey. Some of you have been there. And then you look another 30 yards to the back wall. And that's how long and how big and how massive this place is. Well, the dome caves in. The Pope needs money. So he hires a guy by the name of Tetzel, Johann Tetzel. And of course, he 
says Tetzel, to put it in an English rhyme, though it's rhythmic in German, though I don't know German, but he says something to the effect, every time a coin drops into my chest, another soul goes into heavenly rest. So for a sum of money, instead of dying and going to purgatory, which is what the Roman church teaches, because they don't believe in sola scriptura, they don't believe that Scripture alone is the final authority. So if the Pope speaks ex cathedra from his chair on an issue of faith and morals, not everything he says, but when he speaks in an official capacity in Roman Catholic theology, it's on the same level as Scripture. So when the Pope declared in the 1850s that Mary never sinned, it became a dogma. They had been playing with it for centuries. Now it was official. When they said, well, Mary, she actually ascended right up into heaven, and you can pray to her. That's in the same authority as Scripture. They taught, not absent from the body, present with the Lord, absent from the body, unless you're a saint. You can't be declared a saint until after you die, and then they determine if you were really a saint, that you go to purgatory for a period of time. So Tetzel, for a sum of money, sold indulgences. And so people thought, I'll buy this full plenary indulgence, and I'll be guaranteed no matter how I live, that when I die, I'll go right from earth up into heaven. Absolute heresy. The Scripture is clear. When you die, one second after you die, you're either in heaven or you are in hell. Now, there are many things about the new birth that are somewhat mysterious, but have you had it? Again, where did you put yourself on that scale of zero to 100 as to how certain you are that you've had the new birth? Are you 25, 50, 75, or 100? And if God were to say to you, well, tell me how to get the new birth, you say, do you have to know how to get the new birth to be saved? Of course you do. God's not asking you to believe something you don't understand. He's unfolding it for Nicodemus. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus. So Jesus wants him to understand. Look at verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, if you, again, have the NASB with marginal notes, you think Moses, hey, look, I'm meeting 18 and 20-year-olds. They don't know who Moses was. And I get it. You know, 80% of the children this morning under the age of 12 in America are not in church. They don't go. They don't go anymore. Some of the kids who are coming to Awana, they know absolutely zero zippo. And I'm so thankful that God has given us the opportunity, and many of you who are patiently trying to teach some of these children who are totally unchurched. But if you look out in the margin, oh, Moses, what's he talking about? Where's this illustration from? He doesn't use an illustration like this with the Samaritan woman in the next chapter because she's ignorant of the Scriptures. But Nicodemus, he's the teacher. He knows the Scripture. So he appeals to a common illustration. It comes from Numbers 21. Let me read it to you. Numbers 21, you can circle it out there in your marginal notes. And beginning in verse 4, then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. When you speak against God's man, you're speaking against God. They didn't say, hey, God. They spoke against Moses. They spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. We're sick and tired of this manna. The Lord sent fiery or poisonous 
snakes, serpents that bit like fire, fiery serpents amongst the people, among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So here they are, 600,000 men that leave Egypt, excluding women and children. Some will put it at 2 million. That's the conservative number. Some will put it at 4 million. There's a bunch of folks. The poisonous snakes are going through the congregation. They're biting the people. There's no cure. They're sick, they're dying left and right. They know there's nothing they can do. They can't pray harder, they can't come up with some kind of medicine. They're bankrupt. So they go to the one man who can intercede on their behalf. Now we all have the opportunity to go directly to the Lord. We don't need a priest to pray for us. Now I'm happy to pray for you and we should pray for one another, but you can go directly to the Lord. But not at this time. Moses was the intercessor, so to speak, who went to the Lord God. Pray for us, Moses, that God might remove these serpents from us. So the answer, make a snake in the likeness of the one that killed you. Set it up on a pole. Why on a pole? Because God wants anyone who wants to look at it to be cured. God's not trying to hide salvation. He's trying to reveal salvation. He wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He desires all men to be saved, the Scripture affirms. And so Moses made this bronze snake. He set it up on a pole, and everyone who just looked instantly lived. Now, when you read the numbers account, you discover that not everyone looked. No doubt some people thought that was foolish. When we preach the good news, the Bible says to some men it will be foolishness. Brogy, he's an idiot. He's just one of those Bible-believing, thumping pastors. He's nuts. They'll say the same about you. They'll think it's foolish because that's what God tells us is often the reaction of some people. And so the Lord is making a comparison here. Just as this is true, even so this must be true. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, even so the Son of Man, he's going to be lifted up on a cross. Could they do anything? No, all they could do was believe the promise of God, and those who turned in faith and looked were instantly healed. You and I have been bitten with a different snake. We have listened to the evil one. We sinned in with Adam. We are fallen. We are rebels by nature. And we are in the same desperate situation. And God's going to underscore here that he must be lifted up. He must be lifted up. Why must he be lifted up? Because unless the Lord Jesus is lifted up on a cross, we can never be saved. Three reasons why. And Nicodemus should have known these. Number one, because as Isaiah says, your iniquity has made a separation between you and your God. Your sin stains you. It disqualifies you. If somehow from this day forward you could live a perfect life and never sin again, you couldn't. But if somehow you could, it wouldn't erase the mess that's behind you. And so good works aren't like this big eraser that can remove the stain of sin. 
Number two, good works can never satisfy the penalty of sin. He should have known, Ezekiel 18.10, the soul that sins must die for the wages of sin, and it's actually a paycheck word in Romans. Your paycheck for being a sinner is death. Look, if you commit some heinous crime worthy of death and you ask the court for permission to do community service for the rest of your life, they'll say no, not if your crime deserves death. God says our sin deserves death, and we say, I'll get baptized. I'll get confirmed. We'll christen our little one. I'll try to keep the golden rule, but it can never satisfy the justice of God. Jesus said, I will lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one will take it away from me. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. When he was arrested, Mark says a multitude came to arrest him, an oikos. Matthew says a great multitude. John says a Roman battalion. A battalion could be 600 or 1,000. He said a Roman battalion led by a Roman cohort. The Greek word is chiliarchus. We get our word chiliism from it. So we speak of the chiliistic reign of Christ. The Messiah is coming back. He's going to reign on the earth. We pray it. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to go up, but then we're going to come back. And he's going to rule and reign and keep all the promises he made in the Old Testament. The concept of the kingdom that Jesus wanted to explain in further depth to Nicodemus, but he needed to enter it before he could explain it. He needed to have new life before he could comprehend it. But the concept of the kingdom is an Old Testament truth. The length of time is given in the New Testament. So a Roman battalion led by a leader of a thousand men comes. Jesus said, whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene. And he simply says, I am. Moses is at a burning bush. He sees a miracle bush burning in the wilderness, but it's not burned up. It's a miracle bush. He approaches it and God says, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And they have this conversation. At one point, he asks your name. God, what's your name? The Jewish people are going to ask me. God said, you tell them my name is Yahweh. You tell them I am whom I am sends you today. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. It's the divine, sacred, covenant name of God. There are many names for God, many compound names for God. But the most special name of God, given in all of Scripture, capital L, capital O-R-D, it's distinguished in our English Bibles, is Yahweh. Whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene, Yahweh, and what happens? They all fall back. By the way, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And that word fall back or fall down is found in one place in the Old Testament. When God pushes down the walls of Jericho. Jesus, by taking to his lips the divine name, pushes down a thousand men on his back. He doesn't say, well, we're leaving here, guys. No, he permits them to get back up. No one will take his life. He'll give it. He said, you can take me today. He loved his own to the end. He permitted those men to nail him to that cross. It wasn't accidental. It was a choice. It was not those nails that held him to the cross. He had legions of angels he could call down. It was his love, which is the third reason. One, reason number one, your good deeds can't save because they can never remove the stain of sin. Reason number two, they can never satisfy the just requirements of sin. And reason number three is because God is love. God said, here's the penalty, but I love you 
so I'm going to pay the penalty. God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, sinners worthy of death, Christ dies for us. But just because he died, it's not automatic. His death is sufficient to save anyone, but it only becomes efficient for you who believe. Only those who looked at the bronze servant instantly lived. So again, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Now, what does that mean, believe in him? By the way, he has already said earlier in John 6, 47, the one who believes in me has eternal life. Not will have, but has. Eternal life is something you can get today. Because eternal life is not simply heaven. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's knowing the Lord, not just that He exists. All men know He exists. When you meet a person who says, I'm an agnostic or I'm an atheist, with all gentleness, just think in your mind, He's a liar because that's what He is. He's not an atheist. He's not an agnostic. He may say that with His lips, but according to Romans 1, He knows there's a God because God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature are clearly seen through the things that he has made, so that men are without excuse. But just knowing that God exists, even though they knew God, they did not acknowledge him as God. Just knowing that he exists doesn't mean you know him personally. And that's what he designed you for. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O Lord. Pascal, the great scientist and philosopher and physicist, said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. And you can spend your whole life achieving fame and fortune or whatever is important to you and come up empty because you will in the end because the Lord made you so you could know Him. So what would you say why God should let you into heaven? What is the way to have a new birth? Maybe some of you wrote out in the margin of your mind, I don't know what I would say. What would that tell me as a pastor? It just tells me you're lost. Now, do I blame you for not knowing? Of course not. We're all born not knowing. Whoever will call upon the name of Jesus, he's talking about contextually, according to the prophet Joel, will be saved. But how can you call on Jesus unless you first hear about Jesus? How will you ever hear about Jesus until someone goes and tells you about Jesus? That's his argument in Romans 10. I was 18 years old when I heard the plan of salvation for the first time in my life. I told some people, meet the pastor recently, my grandfather was 86. It's almost like God preserved his life so I could get saved and I could go share the most important thing in the world to me with my grandfather. But if you don't know, it just means you're lost. Some people think they know. Some of you, why should God let you into heaven? What do you do to get a new birth? And you just give an answer of works. If you could be saved by human effort, by good works, by obedience to the law, then Christ is dead in vain, Galatians 2.21. He wouldn't have had to have died. He could have just come and met a supermodel, skipped the crucifixion, ascended right into heaven. But he doesn't ascend into heaven until he first chooses to die. The third equation, this is the Protestant Reformation. Do Catholics deny that Jesus is God, died in a cross, was buried in a tomb, was raised from the dead? No. In fact, they are more accurate than many liberal Protestants are. They would affirm those things. They would just say they're not enough. They would say your faith in Christ plus the good works you do will secure salvation. So Luther, on October the 31st, 
puts on the door of the church 95 departures from Holy Scripture. What's the Roman Catholic reaction? It's called the Council of Trent. They meet from 1542 on a number of different occasions until 1568, and they produce this document. It's a great read. And in it, just to paraphrase one of the canons, I think it's canon 68, they say, anyone who teaches that justification is simply on the basis of grace appropriated by faith and that good works do not help to contribute to that salvation, he is to be damned. He is to be anathema. And of course, Vatican I, Vatican II, 2010, the College of Cardinals reaffirmed that teaching. Look, the problem with that answer, like the one before, two problems. One, it's saying, though you shouted from the cross, it's finished. Tetelestai, it's a first century Greek word that they wrote on a tax receipt when you paid your tax. They put it out in the margin next to your name. Tetelestai, paid in full. Though you shouted it was paid in full, it wasn't. Number two, you're not really owning your sin. You see, for so many years... When I said, well, God, part of the reason you should let me in is because I've done A, B, C, and D, and I've never done E, F, and G. What was I saying? Because I'm a good guy. And Jesus said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor. Those who are sick, I didn't come to save, in air quotes here, the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Unless you repent, you perish. Unless you change your mind about your sin, that it damns you, that it separates you, that it invites the wrath of God, and it needs to be forgiven and cleansed, and you can't do it, you're not savable yet. But when you put your faith in Christ alone, there it is, sola gratia, sola fide. The left corner, grace alone, faith alone. Important catchphrases from the Protestant Reformation. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That's grace alone. That whoever believes in him, that's faith alone. When you come to the point and you say, God, I'm bankrupt, I can do nothing. I put my full weight in the Lord Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel, the power to save. In a moment's time, you're born again. The spirit of God comes to live inside of you and everything changes from the inside out. That brings us to the world's greatest text. The world's greatest text, verse 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, present tense, eternal life. Notice how the verse begins, for, it's gar. In other words, he's helping to expand on the thought that he just gave in verse 15 as to why the son of man would be lifted up. God gave his son simply not by sending him into the world, but that he might lift him up on a cross. His one and only son, his monogene, his uniquely begotten son. He gave his son. Jesus did not simply come into this world. He was sent into this world. You and I, we were born into this world. Jesus was sent into this world. He leaves heaven and he becomes a man. And he comes for the express purpose of dying for us. Now, there are some brothers in Christ in our nation who say that Jesus did not die for everyone. He just died for a select few, for the elect. And if you listen carefully, you will pick up their wording. Oh, Jesus dies for those who will repent and believe. Meaning the atonement, the death of the Lord Jesus, is only for those who will believe. And they take verses like this, John 10 and verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. There it is, they say. He didn't die for all. He died for his sheep. Now, that verse is not dealing with the extent of the atonement. It's dealing with the intent of the atonement. 
that when the Lord Jesus died there on Golgotha, that he died especially for those who would embrace the payment that he would make, not for those who would ignore it, not for those who would blaspheme it, not for those who would speak evil and disdain it, but for those who would embrace it. He loved us so much. And by the way, the death of Christ is not only the basis of justification, it's also the basis of condemnation in Scripture. No one will be able to say, well, Lord, even if I wanted to believe, you didn't give me an opportunity because Jesus didn't die for me. No, his death will condemn you because he made a provision and you rejected that provision. It's like a man who's on death row and the governor pardons him. If he says, I don't want the pardon, and there's one famous case when a man was to be hung and he rejected the pardon, they had no choice but to hang him. Well, God hasn't provided just a pardon. He's provided forgiveness. And there's a difference. A judge can pardon you, but he can't forgive you. God pardons us. He forgives us. He washes us as white as snow. He imputes the righteousness of the Lord Jesus to you. But listen, you say, well, how is this an expression of Christ's love? For God so loved the world. Seems to me like, how does this show that Jesus loves us? In fact, some people would take John 3.16. I remember Phil Donahue. I was a relatively new Christian. Jerry Falwell, I used to love that guy. He'd get on national TV and he'd get into these debates and he'd charge hell with a squirt gun. And, and Phil Donahue said, well, tell me, Jerry, you got a son, don't you? Yeah, well, if you had only one son, would... would uh, would you give your son to die for someone else? And if you did, how would that be shown that you love somebody else? I mean, why don't you get off your mighty throne and die for, die for that person? How is God loving us? By giving his son. How is that an expression of the love of God? God demonstrates his love towards us. And how is that an expression of God's love? Why didn't he come down the Father and die? It's a good question. Dr. Falwell had a good answer. Now, there are some verses, by the way, that express Christ's love. The Lord Jesus speaks of how he loved me and gave himself up for me, or Paul quotes that. But this verse is speaking of the Father's love. How is it an expression of the Father's love? Because God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, I might add, are inseparable. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 19. And so indeed, it is an expression, and I could draw it out this morning, but I won't for time. The Spirit was engaged as well. He is the monogene. He is the uniquely begotten Son of God. Why? Because he's virgin born. Remember, we don't believe he was created. We believe that the one was sent into the world, he leaves heaven as the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary's womb. Let's go finally quickly to the third point, the world's greatest text, the world's greatest test, I should say, the world's greatest test. So beyond the greatest truth, the greatest text, we come now to the greatest test. How do I know if I've really believed? Listen, the demons believe and tremble. How do I know if I've believed? Listen, there's a lot of people who know it's by grace, not by works. They know the plan of salvation, which is a prerequisite to genuine conversion. You have to know that much, and even a child can get it. But you can know that and still die and go straight to hell. 
I had a professor at Boston College who could articulate justification by grace alone is that history professor taught Luther's position, which was the biblical position and how God saves a person, but he was a professed agnostic. You can know how to be saved and be lost. So what is the test? Beginning in verse 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that, he should be, but that the world might be saved through him. Again, the prophet said, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and the child's name will be called God with us. El, God, Emmanuel, God with us. The angel Gabriel said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So, verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. In other words, Jesus didn't come into this world to bring a message of condemnation. Why not? Because we're already condemned. Now, there's not an age of accountability. It might be better to say a point of accountability, because I'm certain in God's holy providence that He sees children develop in different levels and in different ways. Understand, God doesn't create a baby and nine months into the pregnancy, you have a miscarriage and deliver a stillborn only to send that child to hell because the child hasn't believed. Or God weaves together a baby in a mother's womb and the mother says, I don't want this baby. I'm going to discharge this baby and I'm going to go to my Planned Parenthood clinic and let them use the vacuum cleaner and tear that baby to pieces. Or as in some hospitals in the world and in the United States, yeah, she's nine months pregnant. We can't grind this baby, but we'll deliver the baby head first. And just before the baby is delivered, we'll put an instrument in the back of the neck and we'll suck all the brains out. We'll crush the skull. I'm just talking to you about being real. This is what's going on in our nation. This is what one of the parties has in their platform. There will probably be rioting in our streets if the Supreme Court does what's right. Now, I'm holding out a hand of forgiveness, but if you don't call sin, sin, you don't need a Savior. Man's condemned already, and so there comes a point where God sees that child is able to understand. Guilty by nature, we're children of wrath. So he didn't have to come into the world to condemn the world. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged, condemned already. You're in one of two groups. You're either in the judged, condemned group or you're in the saved group. There's no in-between. So you have to choose. Which group will you be in? Will you believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved or not? Verse 19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. By the way, God doesn't take unbelief lightly. It's like the critic who takes apart some masterpiece done by one of the great artists of the world. <laughs> the, the artist isn't condemned, he's condemned. And men can pick apart my message and make fun of me and the message that I preach. But they're condemned. And God doesn't take it lightly. This is the judgment that the light is coming to the world. What's light for? To dispel darkness. Jesus is described in the prologue of John's gospel. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You see that word explained? 
Exegizato, it's the word we get our word exegesis from. I'm supposed to exegete the scriptures. It takes time. If you came for a 15-minute sermon, you came to the wrong place. The Lord Jesus put a face on God the Father. He exegeted the Father. He tells us what He is like. That, like, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness. Have you ever heard the somewhat naive expression that God's love is agape love? Actually, the word that's used in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, is the same word that's used here. Men loved agapao. They loved the darkness. It just describes willful love. Sometimes it's positive to describe God's willful love for us or negative of man's willful love for sin. Men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And by the way, as lawlessness grows, and this is why I did a whole sermon on preaching Christ courageously, because things are heating up. And you have to choose who you're going to stand with. These kids go off to college, and they are in for like a shock. And they stand for Jesus, and they find all of a sudden that they're alone on their dorm floor, and everyone seems to dislike them. You know, we saw two stadiums in the last month filled with hundreds of high school students cheering because some guy who said he is a girl has made the homecoming queen. This is the evil of our day. We need to prepare our children to stand strong in the midst of persecution. And the darker it gets, the more bright the light will be, and some will respond to that, and some will just hate us. But, verse 21, he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Notice the two contrasts. First, in verses 19 and 20, the one who loves the darkness, who does evil, and so they hate the light, versus the twice-born person who practices the truth, and he has no problem coming to the light. So which group are you on? See, when you're born again, you show your life as being rotting God. So this website came out this week. My wife emailed it to me, Jen Hatmaker and all these other people who used to write on evangelical presses like Lifeway. And it's all about born-again homosexuals and how the church needs to accept this lifestyle and embrace this lifestyle and that we've been wrong for 2,000 years. It was shocking, some of the things I read. But you see, when you're saved, everything changes. And you are able to demonstrate through a changed life that your deeds are wrought through a second birth in God. So, as we close, where are you? Are you still on the left side, condemned, separated, by nature a child of wrath under God's judgment? Or have you moved to the right side where you are considered, as Romans 5 and verse 10 says, a friend of God? There's no in-between. You say, how do I move from the left to the right? By faith. What's faith? Faith is taking God at His Word. Hundreds of visitors came last night to our fall festival, and thank you all that worked so hard. I mean, we had close to 2,000 people here, maybe more. I don't know the exact number. It was just packed. 
But they came because someone told them there was a festival, and they believed a man's word. That's the nature of faith. You believe God's word. If you can believe man's word, you ought to be able to believe God's word because God can never err. And God can only tell the truth, and He'll keep every promise He made. And God Almighty says, today is the day of salvation. When you hear His voice, when you hear the message, I'm preaching the voice of God today from the Scriptures. Don't harden your heart. Some of us, we're going to leave or we're going to turn off the Internet site. We're listening through in just a moment. And you can leave the same way you came in, lost. And that would be a terrible thing because God Almighty wants you to be saved today. And if God wants you to be saved today and you say, not today, Lord, you've hardened your heart and the devil's had a victory because tomorrow morning it won't be easier for you to become a Christian. It will be more difficult. And there may come a time, it could be today, when you put that final callus on the human heart because you would not believe. You could not believe. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Maybe today you would like to receive the free gift of eternal life. God would love to give it to you. But He cannot make that decision for you. You must choose whether or not you'll believe the promise that God made, a promise that He could make because of what He did on the Golgotha, on the cross, that if you will call on Jesus' name, He will instantly and forever save you. Would you there pray, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to go to heaven. Thank you for coming to earth, for dying in my place, for taking my judgment. Lord Jesus is the risen Lord. I trust you now to save me and to forgive me and to change me. Thank you for the free gift of eternal life. Thank you for forgiveness of all my sins. Make me to be whatever you want me to be. Father, help someone who just prayed that prayer not to be ashamed during this invitation to be willing to make it public, whether here or Graniteville or in Grace. And then as an emblem of the decision that they've made to be baptized. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. People often ask me, Pastor, what do you have to do to become a member of Community Bible Church? Just two requirements, the only two found anywhere in Scripture. One, that you've received the Lord Jesus as your Savior. You can say, I'm 100% because of what Jesus did for me. The only other one in the New Testament is you're baptized after you're saved. Baptism doesn't save you. It symbolizes the one who died, was buried, and was raised. We just baptized in the last service some new believers. They were saying, my faith is in Jesus who died and was raised again for me. You do that after you're saved. That's why infants are never baptized in Scripture. Believe and then be baptized. Two requirements. Maybe you've done that and you say, I need a church home, I want to invite you to make a decision of some sorts. It might be to confess Jesus for the first time openly. It might be to be baptized. You've been saved before, but you've never been baptized since you've been saved. Or maybe you just need to join this church as every believer needs a New Testament church. I invite you to come. Matt, lead us if you have a decision. Step out now.